Welcome to Internauts, the fortnightly CSIRO podcast where we talk about breaking science discoveries from around the world, Australia, and inside the CSIRO. I'm Jesse Hawley from the CSIRO, and I'm joined by my co-worker Sophie. Hello. And our producer, Adrian. Hi, everyone. How are we? Fantastic. Yeah, pretty good. Today we'll be chatting about <laughs> spiky antibacterial surfaces, targeting obesity through worms, graphene, one of the world's strongest materials. We'll be crossing over to Asia, a CSIRO communicator aboard our research vessel, The Investigator which is conducting research in Antarctica at this very moment. Before we get to the interview with Asasia in Antarctica, let's cover some science news. Research conducted by an Australian and Nigerian team of researchers describes a special antimicrobial surface. So the surface, it's not a, it's not a chemical that actually kills the microbes. It's in its actual structure that kills the microorganisms, bacteria. Um, the paper that was published in is called The Bactericidal Effects of Natural Nanotopography of Dragonfly Wings on oh, E. coli. I didn't get it this week. <laughs> I'm usually subscribed. Here's <laughs> a subscription. So bactericidal, suggesting that it kills bacteria. And nanotopography, it's a cool word, um, alluding to on the surface of a dragonfly wing, they looked at under some uh, electron micrographs, I believe, uh, very elaborate and undulating bumps on the wings of the dragonflies. So originally they um, they knew that bacteria couldn't actually grow on dragonfly wings and the assumption was that there were bumps and they thought that the bacteria were landing on the wings of dragonflies and getting punctured and uh, just spilling the guts all over the place. So it's called the, the bed of nails hypothesis. But um, they actually looked at the, um, the wings under microscope and they observed that they weren't actually pricking the bacteria. The bacteria were just landing on the wings and the bacteria covered in this this slime, almost snot-like slime, and that would adhere to the wings of the insect. And as the bacteria started moving away, it would go with its slime like snails do on a much smaller level, and it was actually getting adhered to the snot. And oh, and just being torn open. Torn open. Not a great day for a bacteria. No, it's not. I don't know what is a great day for a bacteria. <laughs> <laughs> well, presumably landing on something that isn't a dragonfly wing. That sounds kind of lovely. It's majestic. It's like the never-ending yeah. story. <laughs> but, but in actual fact, it's horrific for the bacteria. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the trick is, once they land on the wing, if they don't move, they're fine. It's the movement, like uh, getting your tongue. Do they need to move to survive? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're really so they're it's in a, a it's, bad position. To yeah, spot. they're stuffed. Rock in a hard place, really. Sure is. Um, yeah, so what's very exciting is there are lots of chemicals that we use to kill bacteria already, bacteriocidal chemicals. So we're talking sort of typical sort of household cleaner stuff like that, yeah? Dettol, yeah. Um, it's even in mouthwash, triclosan. Yep. But there are lots of um, unforeseen impacts. Triclosan, for example... Once it gets to the waterways, can... Uh, Doesn't or- it make fish switch genders spontaneously? Oh, yeah. <laughs> go through a little fishy crisis. Yeah. Ooh. Wow. Yeah, so that's no good. And w- once it builds up and everyone's using... Um, I think that's in the process of being weeded out. Um, but, yeah, no, so this is exciting because it is... It's like a physical property that's actually antimicrobial. So um, they've done preliminary... They've made a surface with the same nanotopography and they've grown bacterial cells on it and they've grown... Um, cells like our own, they use primate cells, and the bacteria instantly uh, disintegrated, and the monkey cells that they used were able to proliferate just healthy like it was any type of surface, because these these nanostructures that are on the dragonfly wing, this material, are just so small, they don't puncture or affect the membrane of our cells. Do you think they're going to, sorry Adrian, do you think they're going to bring out like a new line of human hand soaps using those properties? Sandpaper. Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, I don't know. Just I, I think it's just be at all times. surfaces like at the vet or hospitals or even beds. It's um, yeah, got some, lots of exciting applications, literally applications. How do they make that? How do they, how do they make the material? Okay, it exists no, in no, nature. No, they didn't make it. They it, artificially made it. Oh, it exists okay. in nature. Okay, we know it exists in nature on the dragonfly wing. Okay, they've worked out this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to try and replicate. How do they then go ahead and make that? Do they get some really really small carpenters in with some really really small hammers and chisels Ooh, and jackhammer? <laughs> million tiny jackhammer. <laughs> yeah, that's your answer. Yeah, right. And now Sophie's going to tell us how roundworms can inform the biology of weight gain or weight loss. Cool. So researchers from Monash University in the Uni of Copenhagen, uh, they discovered a gene in roundworms, faithful old roundworms, uh, C. elegans. I'm calling it that because I can't pronounce the full scientific name. Right. Jesse? Canarabidabidus. Oh. <laughs> that's that's hey? not it. Oh. <laughs> uh, they found a gene that produces proteins and it could combat obesity in humans they found that gene makes a protein called ETS5, and that gene is pretty special. It controls the signal from the brain to the guts, and it tells you when you've eaten enough. Ah. And also, luckily, that uh, you should have a sleep afterwards. It's good what? that they go hand in hand. <laughs> yeah. Why do you sleep after a meal? Well, I think it's your body saying you need to stop eating. Please oh, right. stop okay. eating. So go, to go to sleep. sleep. Yeah. <laughs> it is difficult to you sleep can't. when you're snoozing. So isn't that or a thing? Eat while you're sleeping. Or eat while you're sleeping. Yeah, what did I say? <laughs> Sleep while you're snoozing. <laughs> oh, my God. It's very easy to do that. <laughs> um, so it says, okay, gut, I see you've got enough fat stored in there. Time to have a nap. Uh, stop moving. Uh, researchers found that when they removed that gene, um, that the C. elegans stored 20 to 30% more fat than in their intestine than the normal roundworm that had that gene still going. Yeah, right. So interestingly, um, when the worms had not had enough to eat or enough nutritious food, they would go out in search of better food. Mm-hmm. Reminds me of like last weekend being hungover, <laughs> walking up and getting an acai bowl, but that some, was some token leaves. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it means that they keep roaming, and that in itself, you're moving, burning fat. Um, so basically. Um, so what's the application here? They're looking to. Again, like the dragonfly wings, they're looking to recreate this in humans. humans. Human worm hybrid, earthworm gem. So well, humans no, no, are actually eighty percent genetically similar to worms. What? Those round worms. Eighty. Sea elegance. Eighty percent. Yeah. Well, we're fifty percent to bananas. What? <laughs> what is this madness? You're confused, Holly. Go. <laughs> well, we. What are we? Ninety-eight point something with chimps. Chimps. Yeah. How's a chimp? So a chimp and banana are related. <laughs> they, they, eat, they eat them. They eat them, yeah, so. They bloody love them. <laughs> um, yeah, these sea organs actually make really, really good um, research. How can we be 80% worm and 90-something percent? Because we all need to make the same stuff. You've got to have a mouth, a butt, intestines. You've got to breathe. you got to have ovaries, sperm, or metabolize. Yeah. All of these things are shared. There's no difference. So they we're basically a very elaborate. Art. We're a very elaborate worm with, some, with a beard. So we're no longer monkeys. Oh, we're primates, yeah. But but primates are also elaborate worms. Like, pretty much right. everything on the land is just a, a, a worm with limbs. I'm so having my mind blown here. Yeah. We're episode two. <laughs> they don't have I, bones, I a heart, out. or a circulatory system. I don't want to demean them. They don't have a heart. <laughs> <They've got> a <laughs> heart. <laughs> like a care bear. We're going to get letters from worms now. <laughs> <laughs> 
They only take three to four days to grow in a lab. Uh, They have a a very nice life expectancy of two weeks. Um, They eat, they metabolize, they... Uh, reproduce and after that they lose their vigor and they expire. Just give up, like yeah. us, basically. Yeah, right. Um, so yeah, it means uh, because they've found a gene that's similar in humans, humans equal worms, mm-hmm. or you know, as you've just more or less dropped on yeah. me. <laughs> uh, they could locate that uh, gene in humans and develop a drug to target it, which could reduce your appetite and make you feel more satisfied from smaller portions. By, by way of making sure that you don't go to sleep, you don't feel drowsy after eating. That's a problem I have yep. at work regularly, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> about 2, 3 p.m. So it's pretty significant, 2 and 3 Australians And so this protein overweight. doesn't exist in humans at the moment? Uh, something similar exists in this like specific ad- gene called um, ETS5. Oh, so, sorry, ETS5 is the protein, is that right? It's the gene that makes the protein. Right. And I believe that family of genes is common in humans. Right, okay. Almost two in three Australians are obese, so it's pretty significant. Um, I guess I'll be looking next steps to develop the drug to target it. Yeah, there you are. Mm. Fantastic. I've got the final piece of science news. Research at the University of Freiburg in Germany has found how desert ants find their way home in a completely featureless environment. So these desert ants, called Saharan desert ants, live in, you guessed it. So they're desert desert ants, because Sahara means desert. Oh, does it? It does. Wow, in what, what language? I'm not sure what language, I just know that it means desert. <laughs> um, I presume in some African... Neat. The Sahara Desert Ants. So desert Desert Ants. Sorry, go on. They live in salt pans, um, which are these vast flat surfaces where salt and other minerals collect. Ridiculously flat, the sun beats down on them, they yep. shine white. Uh, often animals use their environment as landmarks so they can figure out where they're going. Mm-hmm. The ants have a central they got a nest and they've got a hole and they have to go out foraging looking for food. Uh, lots of other species of ants lay down these chemical trails and when they go, they find food. They reinforce the chemical trail for all of their oh, nest mates. So the buddies come along and follow them. Yeah, yeah, it's like a breadcrumb trail, yeah. but ants love that, so it's like a, that from there. But they follow it, and um, if there's nothing at the other end, they'll get rid of the trail, and mm-hmm. they keep reinforcing so they know where to go. These desert ants don't do that. They're uh, much more Spartan. They, um, they actually know how many steps they've taken, thus how far they've gone. They've got an internal clock of where the sun was when they left the nest, and wow. when the sun is, when they get to the end, I don't know if they've been watching like Bear grills for ants, <laughs> but they've got all this stuff factored in. They understand angles of the sun. Yeah, trigonometry. I still don't know yeah. if it's midday, 4 p.m. They've got all the answers. The researchers developed to find this out a tiny little treadmill for ants. It's um, <laughs> How tiny are we talking? Tiny, tiny. And it's really well done and adorable. You should check it out. Um, I'll probably just Google Desert, desert ants plus cute treadmill. Um, we were told to come here. Um, and they set these ants in the treadmill, and there's all these sensors, and the ant runs on the ball, and the ball goes in all different directions. The analogy was it's like a, um, an old-school computer mouse where the yep. ball rolls and the input, the inverse. And they could find out where the ant's walking. So they'll get an ant, and it will leave the colony. It'll go searching for food, meandering, or like a zigzag pattern, mm-hmm. as you do. And uh, when it finds the food... It wants to go back to the nest, and then the researchers would abduct it, put it on this ball, and then the ant would, in its mind, start tracking back to its nest. Oh, wow. The ball would roll, go into a computer, show how the ants found their way back to the nest. Um, and so it's like would, ant boot camp. Ant boot camp. That would just confuse the heck out of the ant, though. 
I know it's the like... The go, he'd follow his course back to, back to the nest and then go, hang I'm on here. a second. I'm still in the same hang spot. On. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh, it's like a really horrible job. You yeah. know, they feel like they're making progress. It's poor little ants. Um, yeah, so <laughs> the, the researchers, we get this they found out that... Um, so the ants are using the sun. They're using their own internal pedometer. They... Um, on their way back to the nest, they make a beeline, ant Do we line. have internal pedometers? Ant line. Mm, ant line. They're external pedometers. Yeah, on your head. Yeah. yeah. Okay, just checking. They got one in their brain. They. What? They, that's just how they keep, keep tabs. It said their brain was the size of a pinhead, yet these are relatively large ants if you check them out, these right. high-end desert ants. But, um, so they make a, an ant line back to the nest, and when they get in the vicinity, they're like, oh, I'm pretty sure home's roughly around here. Then they'll, st- they'll go into foraging mode, so then they start doing the meandering thing until yep. they find the exact hole. So they don't rely on chemicals. They just rely on their, their wits. Memories, yeah. Their memories, yeah. It's pretty spectacular. So um, the researchers are using, going, looking to use this technology to incorporate into um, robots and artificial intelligence and about making their way back. Skipping up on humans with no sense of direction, just <laughs> wait for the next upgrade. I was recently in Japan, and after a night out one time, I w- my phone ran out of battery, and I was just like a lost ant in the city. I was in a featureless landscape, just like these salt pants. Mm. And, um, featureless in Japan? Well, everything looked the same, oh, like right, the okay. grid, grid so of buildings and roads. Yeah, it's featureless to me. Yeah. Made it there, back to the nest. What did you end up doing? I don't, want, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> We're about to speak with Asasia Young, a CSIRO communicator who's currently aboard the RV Investigator. That's the CSIRO's research vessel that's currently doing research down in Antarctica. Uh, our first question is, um, just for the listeners, because imagine what it's like on Antarctica. It's pretty alien to most people, I imagine. Could you tell us about what you can hear and see? Yeah, of course. So we are on the Sabrina Coast, which is uh, sort of the ocean um, off East Antarctica. And so um, we've got an area that we've been we've been sort of taking samples of and surveying. So um, we're constantly on the move. But um, last night we were right up against the sea ice edge, and so that is just amazing. You can see sort of the sea ice and then icebergs actually stuck in the sea ice, um, and there's always lots of icebergs around. And wherever there are icebergs, there's normally whales because um, there's the food that they eat sort of sits around the iceberg, so it's always really, really pretty. And Nastasia, are you actually are you staying on the boat, or are you getting off the boat and getting onto land at any stage? Yeah, no. So we're on the ship for the whole fifty-one days. Um, so I mean, you get to know the people that you're living with really well. <laughs> Most of us obviously come on as strangers. But, Definitely not um, holding a grudge yeah, we'll against anyone right now. No, 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 not at all, not at all. Everyone's, um, the energy is actually really great. So we're six weeks in um, and people are still, um, people are still really energetic. So it's a good vibe. It's great to hear. Um, Asasia, we had a question from a listener on Facebook, Jack. He asks, do you find that life aboard a scientific vessel in Antarctica, one of the harshest climates known to man, does it hinder the scientific work aboard or does it improve it? Um, well, the funny thing about Antarctica is that um, for the research that we're actually doing, it, it works really well because it's so cold, it works as a refrigerator for um, the sediments that are beneath the ocean. And so 
some of the, the things we're looking at, like ancient DNA and fossils and, and biological and chemical traces in, in the flora of the, of the ocean, is really well preserved in, in that sort of harsh environment. So in some ways, you know, it's, it's one big fridge. So it's, it's a great opportunity to, to learn and get hold of some really great scientific data. So helpful. Mm, it does sound like one big fridge. Uh, another question we did have was the fact that it's always daytime and everything is white looking around you. Do you have any sense of where you are or who you are right now? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, days and time have really no meaning. Uh, <laughs> the science crew work, yeah, no meaning at all. Um, the science crew work uh, 2 a.m. to 2 p.m. and then 2 p.m. Oh. to 2 a.m. shifts. Wow. So um, apart from knowing when your shift is, uh, usually you have no idea what the time is and you definitely don't know when it's the weekend. So um, unless you're talking to friends or family back home and you know if they give you some sort of cue that it's the weekend, you have no idea if it's Friday or Saturday. Wow. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's a really good question. It does happen to be the weekend when we're recording. It's been a pretty relaxing day for us here. Yeah. <laughs> With such erratic hours for um, being on watch or shift work, what do the crew do to try and wind down and make the best use of their uh, downtime, their weekends? Yeah, so, um, well, uh, the ship's got lots of, um, lots of stuff on board, actually. So we've got a gym which is oh, really wow. great and um, yeah I mean it's it's small but it's got a bike and a treadmill and some weights and it's got enough and, that doesn't sound like relaxation um, actually, time to me the, <laughs> oh, well you've got to because the food's so good so you need to exercise <laughs> so you don't come off the ship 10 kilos heavier than when you went on so um, yeah. <laughs> we did have some questions about and, food. Um, Could you tell us what uh, breakfast was like this morning? It was a Sunday. Did you have a lazy one in? Well, um, so we have a hot breakfast available every morning. So wow. bacon, eggs, um, everything you could really want. Avocado. We've still got avocados on, on board, which I didn't think we'd have at week six. Um we get pancakes made every second day. Ooh, um, see that almost guiltily. And yeah. Do you keep yeah, the avocados? Yeah, and then we're for cereal, which I'm pretty boring. That's what I eat. <laughs> <laughs> it's cold enough. Have the hot stuff. Yeah, I know. I know. I should get back onto it. <laughs> I'm trying not to put on those ten kilos. Remember. <laughs> now, Asasha, how many different research groups are on board, and what sort of what's everyone doing? Yeah, so um, probably a good thing to point out with Investigator, um, although it's run by the Marine National Facility, which is part of CSIRO, any Australian scientist can apply to be part of a voyage. So we've got a really big group on the on the ship currently. So we've got scientists from Macquarie University, CSIRO, Geoscience Australia, Australian National University, Monash, and then we've got scientists from the US, Italy and Spain on board so um, it's a really really sort of broad group of scientists but it's really cool to see such a broad group come together to sort of solve you know one question. Yeah cool now we've got another another question from uh, a listener here Stephanie from Facebook asks what adjustments need to be made to either lab equipment or setup or the processes given to uh, given the environment down there 
So um, everything has to be tied down. Obviously, if we're going into 10 metre seas, um, you know, even though the ship's really stable, it definitely still moves around. So, um, and we've got a lot of really expensive lab equipment. So everything is secured. Um, we've also got uh, a hydrochemist who's on board. And so for him, um, when he has to make up reagents and other concoctions, um, he needs really accurate weight um, and you just can't get that on a moving vessel for things that are really light. So he has to bring sort of hundreds of pre-weighed samples onto the ship. So wow. He can, he can do what he needs to do, yeah. What, what temperature is it outside? At the moment, it's only zero. It's been, um, I think we got down to almost negative, I think negative five about a week ago. <sighs> but we are right on the ice edge. And so, yeah, the wind that was coming off it, felt more like negative 10. It was really Ooh. cold. Uh, you said earlier that um, it's great to see researchers from so many different universities all uh, looking to answer one question. What was that question? Oh, so basically, um, the chief scientist is Leanne Armand. She's from Macquarie Uni, so she's the one who's brought everyone together. But essentially, they're trying to understand what Antarctica was like tens to hundreds of thousands of years ago. And so... You know, everyone's talking about Antarctica at the moment, specifically East Antarctica, which is um, melting. And they say if it was to all melt tomorrow, the seas could rise by about seven metres, which is, you know, pretty alarming. Mm-hmm. So basically they're out here, yeah, taking taking big samples of the seafloor and uh, just that helps them go back in time to understand what Antarctica was like in the past. And the hope is knowing what it was like in the past will help them understand what the future holds. What have been some of the highlights of the journey so far? Um, I think for me, definitely seeing the first iceberg. That was that was really, really exciting. It's, um, you know, something that I was very, very excited to see when we left. And, yeah, it was, was really cool. Um, and also, I, I suppose, the whales as well, I know. Um, it's also not science related but it's, they're just so inquisitive and they when we have to take samples we're often in the same spot for a few hours and they just will come up to the ship and just do laps literally wow. around around the ship sort of playing and waving and diving around and it's like nothing I've ever seen before it's really cool Amazing, you said um, the whales like to hang around icebergs or the ice, why is that? Because uh, that's where their food hangs out, basically. So um, the, as a sort of biological components that sit in the, in the ice that break off, uh, fall down, the um, plankton basically eat that, and then the krill eat the plankton, and then the whales come and eat the krill. So it's almost like a big sort of biological party around the iceberg. Antarctic Pac-Man. Sounds like a biological party on board yeah, the ship. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Osteja, what's your favourite part of Antarctica or being on a research vessel more generally? I think um, being on a research vessel, probably the best part for me has been um, watching the students learn from the senior scientists on board. It's, um, It's such a collaborative thing and they're sort of just starting off at their sort of beginning of their scientific career and they're so eager to learn and, um, it's been really 
really amazing to watch teach them a few things about science communication as well and also to learn from them. So it's such a, a great uh, environment where you're just immersed in science 24-7. You, you know, it's all you think about all day, every day, and I think it's really unique and probably like nothing else. Oh, Asija, it's been so fantastic speaking to you. Thank you so much for dialing in. Um, Have a great rest of the trip. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Bye. 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 Yes, well, that was Asija Young and Research Down in Antarctica. Thanks very much for coming on the show again. That was amazing. Incredible stuff. Sounded cold. Did sound cold. Outside, zero degrees. Zero degrees. Zilch. No degree. (laughs) (laughs) no science degree degree. yeah that's me that's what I bring to the table here at Internauts, no degree I I believe you can still follow the regular updates from the investigator via the hashtag RVinvestigator on Twitter, yep Mm -hmm. hashtag RVinvestigator, check it out now as ever, a lot of fantastic research has been going on around CSIRO in the last few weeks Here are two pieces of news. Researchers in CSIRO's tech arm, Data61, analysed mobile VPNs for Android phones. They analysed 283 of them, and they found that they're not really doing their job. Ooh. VPNs. Are you a user? Virtual private network. Oh, nice one. You pay Um, for those, don't you? I pay for mine. What's yours called? Do we need to share that right now? Perhaps not. <laughs> Let's move right on. Let's keep it a virtual private network. Yeah. No, but I use one that was suggested to me, and I've had great success with it. Oh, great. I've only got it on the home computer. Oh, okay, so it's not okay. mobile. Not on my mobile, no. All right, well, they only analyzed mobile ones for this experiment. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yes, VPNs are a way of accessing networks that pre-exist um, within an internal system, and you access them remotely and also disguisedly, privately. So if someone isn't familiar, if I can just break it down and make it really simple, Ooh. basically, well, with mine, the way mine works anyway, I can be sitting in my house in Sydney. I can click on this and choose a network in Vancouver, Canada, and then access the internet from there, basically. So as far as anyone else looking in, they would be thinking, oh, that person's in Vancouver, Canada, not Sydney, Australia. And therefore, it makes it a bit more secure as far as uh, things like banking, so all the online banking I do. VPNs are most commonly used, I guess, in... Uh with legitimate reasons is as it works, accessing private work networks. So mm-hmm. Sophie and I at CSIRO have one that we log into when we're working from home and it's got all our files there. That is a VPN. So this uh, research looked at 283 apps used on phones, not on desktops, and they found some pretty surprising stuff. 18% of the apps, which is around one-fifth of them, uh, didn't even encrypt your movements. Ooh. So they That's did nothing. Sort of the point. That yeah. is the exact point of it. So it was just a, a VN. So it's not private either. It's just an N. Yeah. 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 We're just N here. (laughs) (laughs) Networks. An N of 283. 38% of the apps injected malware and malvertising. I didn't know what malvertising was. I looked it up. It's not flogging Malcolm's on the internet. Yeah. (laughs) Frankie Muniz on the middle of the screen. It's like pseudo-ad companies that um, websites unwittingly put on their website for you to get click-throughs and stuff. Uh, 80% of the apps requested access to users' personal data. Um, Like requesting access to different apps and mm-hmm. even text messages. So in oh, case the, the VPN app needed reading, to send an oh. SMS to a couple of mates, uh, they've got you sorted. Uh, and interestingly, uh, fewer than 1% of the reviews of all the apps mentioned any concerns for these security breaches. So for people who are actively looking for ways to conceal their movements, they're yeah. not really savvy in actually doing it. 
it's just like a superficial attempt to do it. So what's the solution? Because I, I know that people use VPNs for legitimate reasons, more legitimate reasons. Uh, do the, they just the researchers recommend paying for a good service. Mm. And just because you pay for one doesn't necessarily mean it's good. And there mm. are some free ones that are good. But um, looking at reviews and vetting the reviews properly and not just assuming I've got a VPN app, it'll do a good job. Since this paper came out, the researchers contacted the developers of the apps, let them knew about the stats, all these numbers, and some of the apps um, subsequently went back and updated them. Wow, okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know whether they knew that there were problems from the get-go. Like, oh, oh, oh really? This, yeah. We were selling the data? Oh, jeez, we really got to sort that guy. Who did that? Who was that? Yeah. <laughs> so researchers at Syro have developed a low-cost, effective way to make graphene. Um, if you're not familiar with what graphene is, it's an allotrope or a form of carbon, uh, graphite. Um, so it's arranged in a 2D hexagonal lattice format. Uh, if that sounds a bit of a blur to you. Yep. yep. It's like paper diamonds. <laughs> yeah, it looks sort of like a beehive, yeah, but right. you can't pick it up because okay. it's, it's 2D. Graphene is a single sheet. It's a, a single atom layer in thickness. Uh, however, it's 200 times stronger than the strongest steel. The strongest wow. steel. Uh, it's also nearly transparent. Um, it conducts heat. Mm-hmm. And it conducts electricity. So naturally, it's a super material, um, which isn't a scientific term, but it lends itself to many different contexts. It's like a superfood for the material. Yeah, just put it on top of your quinoa. <laughs> Delicious. <laughs> Love me some graphite. <laughs> Graphene. Ah. <laughs> um, so uh, it has many applications. Um, most natural or common one would probably be in small electronics, like smartphones. Um, could be used in batteries, medical tech, or even, um, I guess, in space flight. Yeah, um, wow. Weighs nothing. I read a neat fact that said um, to pierce through graphene, it's so pierce. strong. Pierce. Yep. <laughs> You'd have to have the weight of an elephant uh, stood on a pencil with the tip through graphene, and you need to have that amount of pressure before it would penetrate uh, a graphene sheet of one atom thick. I read that Sheesh. someone accidentally made graphene. I thought you were going to say did that experiment. <laughs> <laughs> The <laughs> yeah. They went through a lot of <laughs> People have been making graphene since about 1964. The most common way to produce it is using compressed gases, high temperatures, long processing times, very expensive. Okay, so that's that's the thing holding it back. Is it so um, involved in making it expensive and yeah, exactly. to make it on a large scale? It just sounds dangerous, like a Darwin Award waiting to happen. Well, yeah. it's high stakes for super materials. What? <laughs> is this a comic, comic book title? Yeah. Well, graphene, didn't Iron Man have graphene in his latest yeah, iteration? His, his latest mask is uh, oh, really? derived from graphene. He upgraded. Uh, so what's new? Uh, our scientists have had a pub- paper published in Nature Communications. Uh, it's basically, uh, okay, so they created graphene using soybean oil. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> it, Magic. It sounds like it was accidental. Yeah, um, right. So if you spoke to the researcher. <laughs> yeah, I spoke to the researcher and to paraphrase his words, he was looking for something else and uh, using soybean oil, he was like, whoop de doo what have I done? How did he know? Did it just smell? Yeah. Yeah. He, it looked at it, he looked at it, I guess. Oh, well. Um, oh, there it is. <laughs> using <laughs> Wait, bring, bring in this the isn't my lunch. <laughs> waka, waka, waka. I've made graphene. <laughs> Delicious. Look at how strong it is. <laughs> the technique is called graph air, but it's uh, not restricted to soybean oil. They speculate that they could use people's barbecue oil to do wow. it. Just come around to your house, look after that for you. Thanks and for the meal. something really 
really strong. So the scientists heated soybean oil in a furnace for about 30 minutes, much less time than previous ways. Uh, The heat decomposes the oil into carbon building blocks, which cool rapidly. They form as a single layer on nickel foil. Um, The end result is it's 80,000 times thinner than a human hair. Whoa. Jeez, <clears throat> yeah, and more importantly, they can do it in normal air temperature. So Not dangerous at all. Yeah, not too dangerous. Probably don't recommend trying it at home. Um, the next piece My is, head is spinning. Yeah. How does it say uh, how much you had to heat it up, the oil, before you can lay it down at the zinc or nickel? Um, well, it was in a furnace, so I imagine it was out. pretty hot. Mm. Yeah. Um, but not a frying pan. No. They did this result, um, the... The piece was only the size of a credit card, so of course they have to work out how to scale it up. Extrapolate that, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I guess they'd be looking at producing something at least a metre in size. Next steps. Yeah, wow. That brings us to the end of episode two of Interronauts. Went pretty well, am I right? Yeah. Another episode, wow. And we spoke to Antarctica. <laughs> or like, at least a sager on Antarctica. Yeah. yeah. It was incredible. What an experience. I felt like I were there. I, I was, was there. there. Yeah, you were there. <laughs> All of yourselves. <laughs> I pluralized myself. <laughs> uh, if you like the show, make sure to subscribe on iTunes or whichever podcasting app you use. Give us a review if it tickles your fancy. You can find us online on Facebook by searching CSIRO in the search bar. Or Twitter at CSIRO News. Tell your friends. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Tell your family. Tell your next door neighbour. I told the guy I get coffee from at work. He, yeah. He wasn't interested. He just handed you a coffee? Yeah. I said it's kind of comedic. And he's like, I don't think you could be funny. Oh, wow. Thanks, <laughs> mate. Yeah. I didn't just, know how just to, a flat white. Didn't, didn't ask for this. <laughs> I didn't know how to come back from that. See everybody in a fortnight. Thanks again for listening. See ya. Bye-bye. Watch your wife. <laughs> it helps me get into the motion of things. <laughs>